0: I think that psychology now has a huge amount to offer. But again, I think a big thing that I would be concerned about would be suicide.
1: Welcome to Drexel's 10,000 Hours podcast. Our goal is to mine the stories behind our region's innovators, inventors, and thought creators. We'll be talking to experts in subjects from fashion to neuroscience to find out where their passion for work and inspiration for ideas comes from. I'm your host, Maurice Baynard. Art and Christine Nezu are a husband and wife research team who teach in Drexel University's Department of Psychology. They run the Nezu Stress and Coping Lab, as well as the New Beginnings Project, which focuses on skill-based training for U.S. veterans, National Guard, and Reserves. Together, they've developed a treatment called Emotion-Centered Problem-Solving Therapy, which has been adopted by the Department of Veterans Affairs and the Department of Defense as an evidence-based program. I'm going to start with our normal opening and say, uh, Arthur and Christine Nezu, welcome to the 10,000 Hours. Thank you. Thanks. Please call me Art. Art it is. Thank you. And Chris. So that my very first question was, how do people refer to you collectively? Oh, oh that's a great question. <laughs> that's kind of a joke between us.
2: What a great beginning. Some of our students over the years have referred to us uh, as... The Nezus. And we have always laughed at that because we thought it made us sound like the flying Melendes. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> right. So. so
1: with like, my trapeze? <laughs> yeah. What do you call a group of Nezus? Right. The Nezus. <laughs> the Nezus. Okay. So the Nezus it is. Um, I'm really interested in your life before the two of you met. Okay. Where'd you grow up? Um, what did you do in high school? What mm-hmm. did you major in in college? Mm-hmm. And how did you end up in science?
2: Who do you want to start? You. OK. Um, well, I grew up in North Jersey in an area just outside of Manhattan called the, known as the New Jersey Meadowlands. OK. You know it well. And um, I went to a public high school, came from a rather small town. And I was very interested in a combination of things that were not particularly academic in high school, so that I was a captain of the cheerleading squad. And, I was a, and, and then in my extracurricular activities, I took karate, and I was a lifeguard and all of that. So I got to do sports type of things. But the, uh, my other love in high school was the theater. And so I was in school plays, and I headed the Stage Crew Association, and that led me to go to college to major in fine arts theater. And that and where'd was where'd you go? and I went to Fairleigh Dickinson University. And it took me quite a while to get through school because during that time, before I met Art, I became a mother three times over. (laughs) And um, And so I was a single mom trying to go to school and trying to get things done. And so it took me, if I put together my undergraduate and my graduate training, about 15 years to get my PhD.
1: That's an incredible story. What was it that made you stick with
2: it? Uh, well, I guess some ambition. Yeah, how uh, did you get sidelined? Right, right, and I, I got sidelined in terms of my my interest area because, okay. um, as I said, I was involved in theater and fine arts, and that's where my I received my degree. But I had to take an undergraduate class in psychology, okay. as all you know liberal arts majors Absolutely. do, and. I realized that what I loved about theater was directing and understanding human dynamics and plays and human drama, and that psychology gave me a real understanding of that. So I took every single psychology course that I, my undergraduate degree would allow, and I ended up minoring in that, so that when it came time to go to graduate school, I knew I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. It's wow, that's an incredible story. Yeah. So art. Hers' story
0: is better than mine.
1: Yours doesn't start in Northern
2: Jersey?
0: (laughs) No. Okay. Um, Actually, uh, I was born in Harlem, um, and my family at that time uh, moved to Queens when I was just before preschool, um, and then grew up in Queens and went to public school, and that's Brooklyn Tech. Um, And my older brother went to Brooklyn Tech, and subsequently me, my much younger brother went to Brooklyn Tech also. But part of it was that I was interested in science. Um, thought that I might become an architect, but I really love science and engineering. But I think one of the things was, um, in addition to being that kind of math science geek, there was a tendency for me to always play that game. What do you think is that person's story? So with my friends, we would be sitting, having lunch or in the subway, you know, I bet you I can tell that story better than you can. And that was always that interest uh, interest in people. And... Given that my um, my ethnic racial background is I'm third generation Japanese, but both of my parents were part of the whole um, uh, concentration camps uh, during World War II, um, such that uh, my dad was in 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 the service, um, uh, but my mom was in one of the internment camps. The unfortunate thing, so that there's a lot to be proud of. Um, you know, in terms of that. But, you know, again, the concerns is, so a lot of the stuff that we hear about how veterans and service members these days are are treated, again, harkens back to um, some of those things. So, like, my dad would have been somebody that, um, when he went back to visit his family at the internment camp, you know, was treated, you know, poorly. um, And um, all of the, you know, the discrimination. He, just like most of everybody from World War II, um, never wanted to talk about it, so I'm a kid growing up in America there's these toy soldiers there's cowboys and Indians little you know I went to play with them and I asked my dad a whole lot of questions and uh, he just didn't want to you know answer any of those things it It was quite a while before I realized um he did get a purple heart um and the reason why was that he actually lost an eye and he had an artificial eye and I didn't really realize that and just and I always asked him about that, and he was, again, very, very reticent. So there was always this tendency for me to think about wanting to be with people, to help them um, looking at vulnerable populations. And that, I think that kind of, uh, kind of spoke to what I've done throughout my whole career. But one of the things that um, helped me in high school that was in an engineering high school was to make me decide I don't want to become an engineer. So I went to uh, college from the very, very beginning, um, deciding that I wanted to become a psychologist. I, I majored in psychology um, straight from undergraduate. I went to a PhD program, got my degree really soon. So I was one of those people that went fast track. It's, and it was, it's
1: the exact opposite story. In a way.
0: And, yeah. and luckily, I didn't have three kids before yeah. that. But <laughs> now no, he does. Because I've adopted them. Um, but it's a
1: gaggle of Nasus, by
2: the way. It is a gaggle <laughs> of Nasus.
0: Yeah. Um, and so th- that was something that I've always realized that I wanted to be. So looking back, I-, I don't have any regrets about my
1: education or anything like that. So there, the two of you are—you both have your PhDs. Mm-hmm. Not
2: yet, mine. Not when we met. Well, no, no. I had a master's degree. I wasn't degree. at the PhD level yet.
1: Okay, and so where do you actually meet? Everyone loves a great origin story.
2: Okay, we met working on a special project, a grant that was not a, a heavy research grant. It was what was called like a demonstration, clinical demonstration type of grant um, that was uh, at Fairleigh Dickinson University. And what this grant did was it, it created these kind of SWAT teams that sent um, psychologists, behavioral psychologists into the community to work with families of people who had been deinstitutionalized, who had intellectual disabilities and severe behavior problems from years in an institution. And this team went in and worked with either their parents, foster parents, their caregivers, their group home staff, and taught them ways to help people with their behavior other than pharmacological ways, more of what you would say behaviorally, behavioral ways. And so we were working, I was working on that project, Art was part of the division that was that w- that created that project, and we were working on that together when we met.
1: So, how did the experience of working together mm-hmm. on that project and in that population lead to collaboration between the two of you?
2: Well, for one thing, that group was a very kind of uh, collaborative, tight group of people that relied on each other because we were dealing with some very difficult problems together. We became friends, and we mm-hmm. were. We were good friends and colleagues for about four or five years before we got together romantically.
0: Before we even dated. (laughs) Um, And and by the (laughs) way, this June, it will be 36
1: years that we're married. Wow, that's incredible. Congratulations. Thank Thank you you. very much. So talk to me about the work that you do now and how your focus has changed. Okay. Well,
0: like I said before, Maurice, that um, our entire careers has always tended to be focused on which population or problem tends to be something that um, uh, makes people very vulnerable to a lot of things. But one of the things that has occurred about, uh, I would say, maybe a decade, maybe 11 years ago, is that we're also kind of known for co-developing a particular kind of psychosocial intervention that teaches people um, coping skills and how to deal with stress. And the Department of Veterans Affairs came to us and said, you know, we know about your program. It's, it's evidence-based. It has a lot of research behind it. Uh, but one of the things that the VA is really um, pushing for is to adopt as many of the interventions, the psychosocial interventions that exist that have lots of science behind it. What they were looking for us to do was to do something having to do with individuals that were more recently deployed and came back and who were vulnerable to PTSD, depression, suicide, et cetera, such that um, it was a little bit more of a uh, treatment slash prevention. So it wasn't only for people that came back with some difficulties, it was be people that would be um, kind of identified as having the potential. Um, so we helped develop a program um, that's actually uh, part and parcel of most VAs now. So it's a program that's that's continuously being implemented. Um, and parenthetically, when our students go do practicums at the VA hospitals um, or internships around the country, and they see our program, oh, I know that <laughs> that guy <laughs> supervised me. So that that was kind of sweet. But um, uh, the program that continues, and we also help them. Uh, develop a web course um, and an iPhone uh, app for that. But there was a tendency for many of the individuals to be at risk for suicide. So that became a very uh, significant interest to us. So I'd say for the past, say, five or six years, much of our research has been focused on better understanding suicide and to adapt some of our programs Um, to, again, help people that are at at high risk for for suicide. So one of the things that we're very lucky is to get funding from the Pew Charities Trust. And what we have now is a program that is open to all veterans, regardless of their discharge, whether it's honorable or dishonorable. Um, And anybody, whether they work with the VA or they don't work with the VA, that we have a program that provides free training to them.
1: Could you talk a little bit about the program, what its elements are, how it is? It differentiates from other approaches.
2: Sure. Well, it's based on this psychotherapy approach that we've developed over decades, over basically our careers, Um, and it's called emotion-centered problem-solving therapy. Now, what that means is that... It views the difficulties that people have, the symptoms that they have, largely connected with having to live under stressful life circumstances and having to face very stressful problems in life. And so what we what we do is we provide people with a number of tools to be able to more successfully and more effectively deal with um, stressful life problems. Anywhere from family problems, to financial problems, to housing problems, to drug abuse problems, to any kind of problems that they're having. And um, and we, the reason why it's called emotion-centered problem-solving therapy is because we think some of these tools are particularly potent. One of them has to do certainly with having a planful problem-solving approach to problems, being able to define a problem accurately, generate um, uh, different solutions, weigh costs and benefits and things like that of, of an action plan. But another piece of that is really allowing in and understanding your own emotions and having a way to manage them in a way that you're not overwhelmed by them, because particularly it's negative emotions that people experience when they're upset or they're facing a stressful problem, but that you manage it effectively enough to listen to it. So when someone says they're feeling very sad, right, and they say, oh, I, I can't face this problem. I've been, you know, I'm, I'm crying all the time and I can't do anything about that. We would say using this approach, let's use the tools to manage that sadness, to be able to bring your body's arousal down so that your brain can work. <laughs> but now Let's allow you to experience and be with that sadness so that you understand what is it in your life that you want to change. (laughs) Without our negative emotions, we wouldn't know what our goals are, right? And so we have come to really appreciate even negative feelings that people have as incredibly precious kind of thermometers or barometers of where they want to make changes in their life.
1: Could you talk a little bit about your work with the veteran population?
2: Well, from... For one thing, these are folks that have made an enormous sacrifice, and they have put everything on the line for themselves, and we believe philosophically they deserve to have every benefit in coming back and in, and receiving um, treatment and receiving um, the services that and resources that they require for re-entry back into a civilian world. One of the reasons why they tend to be most, uh, most vulnerable, uh, some people immediately associate things like combat, which clearly are traumatic, right to, to be in a, situ, a combat situation. But one of the things that people don't really see very quickly is just how culturally the military is so different than civilian life. So that when you, when you're in the military, for instance, you don't have to determine what goals you have in life. Your superior officer tells you what goals you have. You have certain missions to do and you have missions that are no fail missions and you're expected to do your job and use your training to accomplish that. And you know exactly where you stand and you know where you have to go. And you have a band of sisters and brothers that, to get, that are to get there with you. You don't have that in civilian life. You don't have that kind of loyalty, that singular mission with everybody working together to achieve it. So now you come back from that kind of a situation and you're in the civilian life and people are saying, what do you want to do? What do you want to study? Um, they're not asking you about your experience back there. They're not expecting you to have the sense of loss of what you had when you were say overseas you know they think of it as a wonderful relief to be back from say iraq or afghanistan but they don't realize just how much you're losing in terms of that culture that camaraderie that uh, security of knowing what your mission is so I believe that that's what makes the population, one of the things that makes the population in general very vulnerable. And then there's the actual trauma and difficulties that one might so have It's in literally a situation. culture
1: shock on top of the trauma that they've brought back based on the things that they've been exposed yeah,
2: to. Yeah, now you've got re-entry into a world that's completely different. It feels like you've landed on a different planet. And so adjusting to all of that is is very, very difficult. And I think that in terms of suicide risk for that population when you were placed in that situation and you don't see a way out of it. All right, where you've tried to get a job and that's not working out. You've tried to have relationships and that's not working out. You've come back and things are very different than they were. Or the child that you left at six years old is now 12 years old and is saying, don't tell me what to do. Okay, So you don't have the respect from your children all right, that you had from all of the guys or the women in your unit. Right? And so you have all of these changing situations. Everything you're trying that you learned in your training the way to think, the way to act, what to do, that's not working here. You start to feel a sense of hopelessness. And I believe it's hopelessness that um, is a real, one of the real hallmarks of suicide risk because that's when you become very disconnected from other people. So one of the tools that I wanted to talk about that um, that we use in addition to teaching people to planfully problem solve, to manage their emotions effectively is we, teach them, we give them tools that might give them a greater sense of hope. And so um, one of those tools is the use of visualization. Now we use visualization in a number of different ways in problem solving, but particularly for hope and to motivate them to continue to work on the challenges they're having, We will use a visualization tool with them that has them look to a future point in time, use their imagery to transport themselves to a future point in time, and to really, in their mind's eye, try and experience what this would be like for them if they could achieve some of their goals. And and people describe feeling, when they do that, that they, their whole body feels different, that they're feeling like there's, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and it gives them motivation to work on things. Does it make them all better immediately? Of course not. But it does give them a, a motivation to work on the issues they're having, and that's what we tell our veterans. We're not saying that this imagery is going to make everything better. We just want you to stand up and to keep putting one foot in front of the other.
0: That's- to also kind of continue to to answer your original questions. Um, it also had to do with a couple of things. And, and part of what you were saying too before former is about um, the sense of uh, the culture. Um, you probably have heard it or you, you have, uh, you know, friends, acquaintances that have talked about uh, how lonely that they felt. And that the idea is that, you know, many of our patients talk about, you know, I have so many friends, I have so many family members um, that love me, but I feel so lonely. And part of it is that they feel that they no one understands me, and part of it is that they're often unwilling to talk about that. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that you go into the military, it's not like okay, the military is going to teach you to be someone who opens up and you talk about all these personal feelings and you know you're going to go into these gut wrenching kind of you know discussions. It's like be a man, and even the woman they're going to say be, okay, a, man. You be a man, be a man, okay, and you know you just talk to people that during their experience during their deployment may have started to feel depressed or may have started to feel anxious, etc. But at the end of your deployment, you know, you go through this, um, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of thing that if you came from space, and you, know, you get all, um, you know, A uh, debriefing, debriefing kind, of kind of thing. And, you know, the idea is that if somebody asks you, do you feel depressed, you know, they're gonna hold you with two three weeks. So all you care about is getting back to your family. Mm-hmm. So if you say anything like that, then, So even though the service these days and the VA these days are trying a lot to destigmatize, there's still a lot of stigma associated with
1: that. Is, is there a way that we can build a more emotionally centered and grounded warfighter without decreasing their ability to be ready to do their mission?
0: I, th- I think that there's strong attempts by uh, different services to try to do that. Um, one of the things that we help the Air Force to do is... Uh, not a psychotherapy or mental health program, but a program to increase their problem solv- so their basic problem solving skills, to better understand how to make good decisions, even when in the context of being told what, what you have to do so that you make some better decisions. So I think that that's kind of important to understand kind of the balance between emotions um, and, 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 and logic. And in some cases, you just can't let your emotions you know, get better of you. But, but the idea is um, there's a place and a context where it's okay to shut down and not use your emotions. There's other places where you should. So it's never again a black and white thing. So again, can you have a feeling but a uh, uh, military-ready person? Yes, if you you know don't harp on repression of your emotions in order to follow orders, but again, there's there's the ability to have it Um, in terms of uh, uh, a balance. And I think
1: that becomes important. Well, thank you so much, both of you. This has been not just informative, but really, really entertaining. Drexel's 10,000 Hour Podcast is hosted by me, Maurice Baynard. Our producers are Sean Fitzpatrick and Nathan
2: Barrick. Drexel's 10,000 Hours Podcast is powered by Drexel University Online.